I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and writer, director, actor, and champion of the Canadian film industry, Jay Baruchel. Canadian films have a propensity for weirdness, and I mean this in the best possible way. Many of our celebrated filmmakers, from Denis Villeneuve's talking desiccated fish narrators in Maelstrom to Patricia Rosema's flying imaginative wallflower in I've Heard the Mermaid Singing, have played with film as a medium, not only to entertain, but to push boundaries on what movies could be. It's something unique to countries whose film communities developed with government funding and tax breaks, giving them the freedom to make a movie without needing to turn a commercial profit. Now, in the earliest years of the Canadian film industry, the NFB, or National Film Board for our international listeners, encouraged and funded experimentation, leading not only to accolades, but also inspiration for cinema generations down the line. Think of someone like uh, Norm McLaren, who won Oscars and changed animation forever. Now, today we're going to look at two movies whose weirdness had more influence than you can possibly imagine in comedy, the pop music scene, and beyond. But before we get into that, Jay, is there any particular aspect of the Canadian point of view in films that you love the most? I mean, you're one of like the most vocal champions of this industry. Yeah. And I'm sorry, that must be annoying at a certain <laughs> point. We'll take what we can get. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. That's Trust me, I'm aware of that sort of thinking, which, by the way, is the POV I think we're talking about. Yes. Like, every time I sort of, like, say something about Canadian cinema and somebody is like, thank you, I'm, I also know contained in that, it's like, I know you wish it was somebody else. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, I know there's like better, better actors and direct. Like, I, I know that this is not anybody's ideal, but, um, you know, at least I'm here. Anyway, you are. No, and you know um, what? You are someone who talks the talk. You walk the walk. You bring productions here. You hire locals. Thanks. Like, it's something you do, yeah. which is greatly appreciated. Yeah, bro. Thank you for noticing. Um, we, we all have a friend um, who has worked for Jay Baruchel. That's just like, if you live in Toronto, like. By the way. Summing up and trying to distill any culture, especially ours, into kind of touchstones is inherently like a minefield, a tricky territory that oh, I yeah. that you you will, you know, no, no matter what, you'll leave something out or blah, blah, blah. But to, to me, it is a, a sort of um, optimism cut with self-doubt. Mm. Yeah. It is a, against our, our sort of national belief system to kind of laud and lionize our own sort of story and our history and our narrative too much right and and we we, we get that sort of a degree of, we inherit that sort of shame from the brits obviously they had no shame waving flags like we do but that so you you take a sort of a, a dose of british shame and you drop it next to this american cauldron where absolutely everything like 
but Buddy's cousin went to the beach. There's a movie about it, right? Like they, yeah. they, they just like are and a t-shirt and an entire cottage industry. And there's a blessing and a curse with it. I'll shut up in a second. You asked me a very simple question. So, so, so this is all to say that like the, the shit I respond to the most and seems to be very Canadian in that you could be accused of being hokey. Right. And, and, and could be accused of being hokey and, and still believing in, quaint things like good and evil however it's always cut with 20 percent of who the fuck am i what business do i have even talking about this is there actually a difference between good and evil like it is this kind of like it, it you know i i think like self-doubt is our our true kind of national pastime mm. um but i i also think that we are and not, obviously not everybody but i think a lot of our sort of institutions and you know maybe and, and i think even us are kind of geared from from birth to be a bit hokey and I think that that's a good thing. And I think it's a nice thing. Ho hokiness or optimism cut with self-doubt. I had a, 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 a language teacher when we were learning American accents in theater school, like you do, yeah. because otherwise you don't work. Uh, he explained it that it comes down to the Constitution, where the Americans fought for their Constitution. We asked for permission for ours. Yeah, so right. the difference comes down to this is our land versus this is our land. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like it's it, that's what it comes down to is that permissiveness of is this OK? Is this cool? And I think that that really does bleed into a lot of uh, Canadian film that does well in overseas markets tends to be the more confident stuff, the more like this is a very specific point of view. Um, and I think that's why stuff like Shit's Creek has done as well as it has, right? Like yeah. it has that heartwarmingness or co our corner gas, right? It's got this heartwarming core that Canadians do very well, but there's also this like um, uh, solid point of view to it of who we are. I feel like the word hokey, and I really like that description, kind of goes hand in hand with earnest like that was yes, the word i was yes. kind of coming up with we did um an episode on heavenly bodies which i think is like one of the greatest right. canadian films of all time yeah. and cynthia dale's performance it, it would never exist in a u.s film because it's so earnest and so committed despite the film being ridiculous and i say that with love there's mm. an earnestness to so much canadian cinema that's definitely in both of these films that is hard to replicate in a bigger market where there's a lot more you're competing with i think i i think that's i think that's absolutely fair and we you know you you could try to unpack the uh you know what why that is what the ingredients of that kind of pov is um but i i also do think that you know at least what i what, what i was saying probably touches more on Anglo-Canadian cinema, I think, than Franco-Canadian cinema. I, I think for obvious reasons, and that's a whole nother conversation, Franco-Canadian cinema yeah. has like been able to achieve a, a level of maturation that like the rest of the country has been to at fits and starts, but we're only sort of starting to get to on mass now. And I think that, you know, in, in, in Quebec, they've been there for, you know, two generations already but yeah i think that's that's fair i think it's it's this sort of like e even in the english shit like it's the same country can yield um and of green gable same network and of green gables and kids in the hall yeah. and 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 yeah. and then they'll and they'll pay and then they'll play videodrome at not that late at night <laughs> like 8 15 <laughs> yeah legit like you know and stomach so, slits and 
Paul. <laughs> so, so, so there, there, there it is, I think. But uh-huh. it's interesting to see what sells internationally. I spoke to uh, Ken Scott, the, uh, the director right. a while ago, um, and Le Grand Seduction is uh, one of, uh, up there in one of my favorite things. And he asked me if I knew who the first country was to buy that film for the international market. And I was like, I don't know, like the UK? He was like, South Korea. Because South Korea is like, this is a story about fishing villages, and that's a lot of what we do. This is very much akin to kind of our thing. So these universality points are really interesting as well about what people will grab onto. Yeah, absolutely. That that's that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I in in the sort of Western hemisphere or the kind of Anglo-American sphere of influence, I think it's either just undisputably good. Right. Like something you can't fucking nobody can take take issue with, like, you know, basically anything Cronenberg has done. And, you know, that that, that's going to make a dent wherever, because that's all Mm -hmm. world. Right. You know, that's um, we're we're lucky to call them Canadian films. But let's be honest, they're world films. They're they're everybody's. They're not like ours. Right. You know. Um, So, yeah, I I, I think that typically in, in this side of the world, it's about like. How, how do you well we we've struggled with is there something called prohibitively canadian like can can, uh. can can something be so fucking hoser that it would alienate people outside right and i i tend to think that more often than not that's an us thing not a them thing i think it's something we're fussed about i i mm. i don't think there's a ton of americans or brits who like commit to a movie and then and then 10 minutes in when they see you know canadian money they're like fuck this and like <laughs> throw, strange throw. brew and bob and doug mckenzie was a huge movie it was produced by mgm it was enormous it did extremely well and that's like yeah. as hoser as you get it was built specifically to be hoser correct now however i i must point out that i i <laughs> I, I was in a movie called the trotsky which i'm i'm, yeah. I'm quite proud proud yes. of and and i think is terribly Canadian, very, very specific because it's about Anglo Montreal and the, you know, and there's not a ton of shit in the past 30, 40 years about that area, that, that community. Yeah. And I remember when it came out in the States, like we all kind of thought people were just going to vibe on it because we all thought and still think it's just a good flick. Right. And I remember one review and I want to say it was like a, out of New York. It was an American review, but I remember that they devoted this insufferable sentence to, um, now there are some inside, there are some, and then the only thing they even said Montreal, they said there's some Canada inside jokes you won't get. (laughs) And I got so fucking mad because I wanted to tell, I was like, you know, my whole life I've watched movies from the States and from England. OK, and any time they referenced a product, magazine, show, location that I wasn't immediately familiar with, I didn't go like another fucking American inside joke. I have to I just was like, oh, that's a thing I don't know. Like one of many, like who fucking cares anyway? So it's yeah. weird. Maybe there is. Maybe there is. A pro- and, and here we go. Back to the fucking what is the Canadian POV? I pause it. 
no other film community in the world has this conversation. That's true. Maybe, maybe Scandinavia, maybe Scandinavia. I always think about like Karis Mackie films and like, and it's funny because Canadian film is so huge in Scandinavia. Degrassi yeah. was bigger in Scandinavia than it was in Canada, which I still right. have to wrap my head around. They have like yearly reunions <laughs> in Finland or something like that. <laughs> but it, yeah, the small little pockets that are like, really cold or either extremely hot, like extremes seem to breed this kind of self-reflection that the middle ground does not. Yeah, no, fair. Well, let's get into a movie that was difficult to distribute. And unfortunately, that's probably why a lot of people haven't seen it. It's unfortunate. So 1985's Crime Wave, sometimes called The Big Crime Wave, to not be confused with a Sam Raimi-directed Coen Brothers penned movie of the same name from the same year, is a cultural touchstone of sorts. Now, John Pays may not be a household name, even for Canadians. But if you've ever laughed at an episode of Kids in the Hall or been delighted by a movie from the 90s golden age of Canadian indie cinema, you owe him a debt of thanks. Written, directed, and produced, and starring Pays, Crime Wave is bizarre, hilarious, and riddled with artistic anxiety, which I find deeply, deeply relatable. Jay, is it relatable to you as well? Oh, profoundly. <laughs> Even though it's like the fucking most, most arch weird thing ever, it's yeah. like so, so fucking relatable. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> It's so great. Well, before we get too deep, Alicia, do you want to do a quick plot summary on this one said in quotes? Yeah, this might be the most unhinged of the films that I've had to summarize the plot of. <laughs> we we have a filmmaker named uh, Stephen Penny, who's played by John Pays, completely silent role. So like Buster Keaton, completely silent, completely stone faced. Such an interesting performance. And his dream is to make a color film noir or a color crime film. Do you think about Hollywood history? There's not that many. There's like Niagara with Marilyn Monroe. There's uh, Lever to Heaven, like film noir and crime films were always black and white. So right there you have this kind of oddity that he wants to be the first one to make a color crime film. And he rents an apartment um, above a garage from a very boring suburban family in Winnipeg who have this really brilliant, apt, kind-hearted daughter who is going to kind of take him under her wing and help him with this film because the problem is is he's really good at the beginnings and the ends and can't do a middle and I think that could be a summary for my life like the middle for him <laughs> is very challenging and so all he has is the beginnings and ends um, and there's a demented doctor that comes up that seems to be also a sex offender that somehow lures him into Silas Kansas with uh, the hope of money I don't, I, can't, I don't even know where to go with the plot with that, but there's some found footage, there's some reenactments, it's all made to look like sort of a PSA from the 50s, or maybe the 60s rather, and it's anchored by this performance from this little girl, Ava Kovacs, who's now a news anchor, I think, in Manitoba, um, as this like, earn, and that's where the earnestness comes in, and it is just insane. It's a you know, the anxiety of influence. It's about not being able to get a project off the ground or finish it. It's definitely about mental illness. It's definitely about living in Winnipeg, which I will admit I've never done, but I'm endlessly fascinated about Winnipeg and people from Winnipeg and how this relatively small town in Canada has bred so much absurdity and so many brilliant minds. And then within 20 minutes of watching, I was like, this guy definitely directed Kids in the Hall and then <laughs> checks out he did. <laughs> like after a five-year yeah. hiatus, they called him in. They're like, there's only one man for us and it's John Pace. Um, and yeah, it, it's pure anarchy. It's pure Kids in the Hall. There's even characters that I think Kids in the Hall are paying homage to in the original series. Um, and if you love absurd con- comedy, regardless of being a fan of Canadian film or not, this film has to be seen. It is, it is really indescribable. 
despite being asked to describe it. (laughs) (laughs) Jay, when did you first see this one? Was this, this wasn't a first time around for you, was it? You've seen this? I think it was the first time I've seen it, but, but part of it, and I don't know if this is just the vibe or that it reminded me of things. It was, it was like one of these films that I was like, did I see this? like late at night once a long time ago. Like mm. I, 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 but, but the entire thing feels kind of like a dream. So, yeah. so I, or, or like an old memory kind of. So, so the entire time I was like having trouble putting my finger on if I've actually seen it before, or it just kind of reminds me or feels like that. Certainly this was my first viewing like A to Z uh, uh, purposefully. Uh, so I talked to Bruce McDonald about this. And one of the things that you might be thinking about is uh, Dr. Jolly is Mr. Skin. They're exactly from the same person Highway, intended to be from Highway, Highway 61. 61. Yeah. Right. So like there's a bunch of people that pulled stuff from that. Yeah. And this is also very Guy Madden. You were talking about all okay. these Winnipegians. Yeah. It's yeah. it's got that same style. The way the editing is, the vignettes, the narration, yeah. like it's all in that sort of vein, right? Or, it's the same kind of language. Or yeah, at least Guy, or or it feels like maybe Guy Madden is very this. Because yeah. he, he, this yeah. is the first one, right? I think, yeah. and 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 I, um, and that was that came to me the whole time I was watching this. Like, oh, I, I see the sort of table set for that, and um, and it was neat to see the to feel the presence of the uh, the the sort of late fifties, early sixties culturally in it everywhere you know given when he was born in the world he would have grown up in and and so as a result it has the same sense of humor that a lot of like um punk records have you know uh like 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 first gen punk stuff it has that same sort of sense of humor that eventually comes out really in kids in the hall in in a massive way you know um and and i think it was such an interesting choice like you said he shot it like like an old like uh like 50s or 60s educational movie like you know like i i grew up i was born in 82 so that means that they were still showing old ass shit at school oh, like sure. like the yeah like Wheel, the, wheeled the, like, in on the cart with the squeaky wheels we, and we, wheeled in on a cart yeah and then we'd watch two kids from like 30 years ago learn about their bodies or whatever and and <laughs> and, 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 and and um so super interesting choice for him to feel like that and deliberately be built like that at least in, 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 in for the most part, instead of being making it feel and be built like the movie he's trying to write. I think most people in making a movie about a guy trying to make a, a, a film noir, the obvious choice would to make it feel like a film noir. And and it really doesn't. There, there, there's kind of no reason for him to decide to make it look the way it does aside from like an earnest bit of inspiration from god to him that told him to do it it feels like it's what he does so he has a number of other films that i highly recommend people check out uh the winnipeg film group has them all on their website you can rent them for three bucks they are fantastic yeah. um and uh, one of my favorites is actually the year before this called the international style uh and it is a spy spoof and he plays exactly the same character mm. he is stone-faced completely silent but he's playing an international spy um and it is fantastic and weird, but it has the same narration, the same weird camera angles, the same like cuts to different vignettes and different characters and ensemble that doesn't really make sense. Um, it's the same like candy colored palette. It's like just his thing, which is really interesting because it's so unique. My understanding is this is sort of a project that was birthed from two failed projects. So I don't want to say it's the scraps because he did film it from scratch, but it was he had tried to make two films and get them off the ground and they didn't work and he cobbled them together to kind of make this, which is even more interesting 
from a perspective of this being about not being able to make a film. And that's actually the case, <laughs> like just a few years prior. Um, and he comes from animation, right? Because I was watching this morning the mm-hmm. animated short that kind of made his name, which uh, did really well, I think, at the London Film Festival, the BFI Film Festival in like the early 80s. And it's it's if you gave the Delirium Tremens Pink Elephants from Dumbo their own movie, which is horrifying because that's like such a scary animated sequence in classic Disney. But he does it so well. And it's once again so unhinged and has aspects of like the text Avery Wolf all of a sudden kind of comes comes in so he's playing with canonical animation houses and like blending them together which perfectly makes sense when i watch something like crime wave except it's just applied to live action that's so interesting that he comes from animation like and and now that you say it it's it's incredibly apparent because like i i think like the best thing about the movie to me is is how much just fucking um energy and hustle it has the entire time and yeah. I, I love all these little uh, tangential visits into other shit that we get to do, right? Like, it's really hard to get bored watching the movie um, because there's just so much, like, wonderful kind of color and everything is an advent calendar to something else, that, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it's, it's really, it reminds me of a very, very old Canadian film. And it's another guy that comes from animation. It's like, they, they both feel like movies. And I mean this not in a dick way. I mean this in the highest possible, as the highest possible compliment, both movies made by men, by people who it feels like no one told them what a movie has to be. Yeah. Um, you know, like a movie is whatever you want it to be as long as you film it. Right. Like, okay. And so it reminded me of carry on Sergeant from 1927. Mm. Oh, you know, um, yeah. because, because Baron's father comes through, he can't, he was a cartoonist. Right. And he didn't know a damn thing. And so, and I, and, and I think in that case, he kind of just made it up as he went along a bit. But so as a result, it does all of these weird things. It, 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 go, it goes to its, its story structure is insane. Um, mm-hmm. Doesn't, you know, it goes to newsreel footage. It, it goes to, um, it breaks the fourth wall. It, it goes to like live action cartoon shit of like a character being chased by a larger than life German shell and stuff. Like <laughs> it, it, it does all sorts of weird stuff and goes wherever it wants to go. Like that, that's what I dug about this is like something I, and anybody that like hates the two movies that I directed will be like, yeah, no shit. He, uh, <laughs> about what I'm about to say, about what I'm about to say, which is something I, I, kind of bump up against don't love of like the sort of last 30, 40 years of, of, of trends and movies is this like uh, relentless zeroing in on a film being nothing but a, a, a reduction to a plot. Mm. So much has been written and institutionalized uh, and, and made academic about what a movie has to be and how you make one that a movie is like now like a like a house right like there's a right way and a wrong way and and I think that like that stuff's very helpful and I think that like I, I, and who am I to shit on people that like write movies for a living much more than me much bigger movies than me I'm just saying I've seen plenty of movies in my adult life and this is more this side of the world than anything else that like make perfect plot sense. Here's a character. I know what their uh, problem slash ambition is. I know how, what, how, what they're doing to remedy it. Oh, look at these things that have gotten in the way of that. Oh, they've learned something and now they've been able to achieve their objective. 
so it's it's there it's all there and yet it feels like i i just ate kind of cotton candy like i didn't nothing happened mm-hmm. to me it's just there's too much math and science in in writing now and in in, mm-hmm. in, in in screenwriting and so when i see something like crime wave or even weirdo fucking carry on sergeant for for all of their ways that all of the things that maybe it doesn't do that i would have maybe wanted it to do i love how the movie feels like it's operating of its own momentum right mm-hmm. and it is just going like a fucking boulder downhill i think the height of of it is to bury your planning so that it feels unplanned. That's actually yeah. how I feel too about this film and also why I think it's so important that you see this film to understand the entire 90s golden age yeah. of indie cinema yeah. because you are seeing that momentum. You are seeing people, like, I mean, you do not get a movie like Highly, Highway 61. You don't get a movie like Hardcore Logo yeah, without no something shit. like this. Even like yeah. Double right? Happiness, like something like yeah, that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, this is so important as like the forerunner, which is even more interesting when you think about how few people saw this and how it did have a festival premiere, but it went notoriously terrible and then was buried for like 25 years until um, the lovely people, including Dave Barber, who we recently lost at the Winnipeg Film Group, made sure that Pace's work was were restored and very accessible to any cinematech um, in the world. That's what's so interesting is how the DNA is there in Crime Wave. And yet you have to ask your que- the question of how many people actually saw this and where did they see it? And it's like you, Jay, like how you're saying, like, I'm pretty sure I saw this in a dream. Like, I wonder yeah. how many filmmakers, like really notable Canadian filmmakers, have a similar sense of John Pace and Crime Wave of like, have you sat down to see it? Or did it just by osmosis as a Canadian filmmaker somehow filter into your bloodstream? <laughs> I don't know how that happens. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I think a lot of people, maybe myself included, if we didn't see it, we saw its inspiration kind of manifested in other shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is so hokey. Uh, uh, when you when you're like, oh, I like Nirvana. Oh, here's the Melvins. I see what yeah. where, mm-hmm. where they get their their shit from, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and that's a good and, example. And I don't, you know, and you don't want to take away. I'm not taking away anything away from Nirvana, but like, you can. It's always neat to see the the sort of like. Yeah, the 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 ingredients, the back of the ancestry.ca fucking family tree of it all. And and yeah, when I was watching it, I was like, oh, it feels like the sense of humor that was like in every repertory cinema when I was a teenager. It felt like it felt like the vibe and the kind of tongue in cheek jokes, you know, like it just was a super punk rock. Yeah. As you were saying, like it's it's anarchic in that way, and it's taking the piss out of things like what punk rock is supposed to do. Like for example, Amway, like all yeah, that yeah. whole segment exactly. there is one of my favorites. I love it, yeah. and would have been a big part of Winnipeg. But mm. the origins of all of these people is on uh, cable access shows. Yeah, right. So like Greg Klimke had a show where Guy Madden was a frequent guest called Survival Man, which I recommend <laughs> people check out. Like the occasional clip, yeah. the theme song is fantastic. But it's basically like a prepper just like giving these bonkers ideas of like how to survive out in the wilderness. And so you see a lot of like the Guy Madden sense of humor, you see this and you can tell all these guys hung out together and bounce jokes off each other. So you can see, yeah, how this movie ended up being the way it did. And yeah. all the same actors are all in all of John Pace's movies. Right. So mm-hmm. everybody obviously had the same, the understanding of the style. This is what we're doing. And when you go back and you watch something like Gimli Hospital, it's the same kind of acting style and you can pick those actors out because they're all their buddies. Yeah, right. Yeah. I hadn't thought about there is like similar actors in Gimli, which just also got a brand new restoration from films we like and is going to show on Hollywood Suite. 
And that's like, that's a trip watching that so many decades later and knowing where Guy Madden went with his filmography, but watching that kind of, you know, Rosetta Stone of his own work, uh, man, it's, it's sort of terrifying. <laughs> Some of these films are really terrifying, <laughs> like, especially the one we're going to talk about next. They, they are in their own ways, horror films, um, in a way that only Canadian Oh, this one, this do. one is definitely, oh yeah. yeah the this rats, one is, so he's being eaten alive by rats. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and Buddy bashing that guy's fuck, you know, his yes. head, his head into watermelon, like it goes, it goes fucking nuts. And, you know, so it's all of these kind of things, these like, yeah, a subversive chat book movie, you know, shit. Like, and it's all this lovely stuff. But I, 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 I want to. I feel obligated to mention that if you, if you lean into this shit too heavily, somebody, you know, might might get the impression that there's no kind of, not no, but like that that the cinema, the filmmaking, the craft itself is is like you know, scrappy often means just like clumsy, yeah. right? You know, and mm-hmm. and. I have to point out that like th- there are moments of like really breathtaking filmmaking, like, yeah. uh, you know, that, that, that shot of the Elvis impersonator watching the, the girl dancing as he's yeah. smoking and he sees her <laughs> reflection in the window and it's like, and you just fucking stay there. And, and I was like captivated and, yeah. and it's like, not a shot that there was any indication of earlier in that movie that that's the kind of thing you'd ever see in that movie. And really, really cool. There's so much technical bravado that I think comes from his background in animation where he's doing all the effects in camera. So any yeah. of the like lettering that you see um, floating, he's, you know, hand drawing that and using um, an optical printer. And he built the like a miniature of the town in Kansas with all the billboards and um, yeah. McDonald's signs. And then, used i mean I'm, I'm not a filmmaker so i'm gonna sound like an idiot but use like a glass uh like yeah. projected through glass to have the figure like it's just and this is one Matt. person doing this it's yeah he did impressive. Matt painting that's yes. so cool that's incredible yes. that's incredible you know these techniques that really date back to the beginning of cinema um like with melies and with you know rear projection and technicolor he's bringing them back into the 1980s in a diy oh, totally shot on a bolex mode and like that's not scrappy that's actually probably in yeah. some ways even harder to pull off than when you have the most expensive camera in the world and a whole team of special effects artists a- absolutely and it's particularly brave to resist the impulse to just like uh keep 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 up with the joneses movies look a- away and they look away and then they look different 10 years later then they look different 10 years after that and blah 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 and it's exciting and it's pretty inspiring to see a, a, a fella who what wasn't trying to um, be current was just trying to make the movie he wanted to make in a pure way. And so he used a language that like, yeah, is largely for, forgotten or, or, or avoided, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, and it's, it's, it's lovely, beautiful stuff. It's like when you hear De Palma talk about it in that documentary where he was mm-hmm. like, I wasn't trying to be Hitchcock. I just thought Hitchcock created this amazing film vocabulary that we should all be using and i just ended up being the only one who was and and so you know and and so i 
Yeah, I think I think that's part part of that bravado is resisting the impulse to be current. Well, talking about the bravado, I mean, it's interesting that he has the bravery to put this on on film. But when it comes to the actual like audience reception of the film, that's where things got a little dicey. So as Alicia mentioned, this had a notoriously painful uh, screening at TIFF before it was TIFF. Um, and so what happened there is that it was 20 minutes late screening because they were having problems with the with the print. And once it started playing, everyone was laughing at the right places. The screening went extremely well. And then the projector broke down 15 minutes before the end of the movie. And if you've seen this movie, you know the tone shifts totally and you Mm -hmm. have to be in that momentum bullet mode to Mm. kind of get the shift. So on the back end, everyone was like, what the fuck is going on? And the room was silent. And John Pays took this to heart and was like, my movie ending is terrible. He sold his car to rewrite the entire Mm. back end of the film and Mm. re-release it with with this different ending. But this all happened before the Globe and Mail review which said if the great Canadian comedy is to be written John Pays is the one to do it. Mm. That was Jay Scott who wrote that. Jay Scott was like our national hero in terms of film critics and he died very young. Um, yeah both Jay Scott and Jeff Pavir who's very much still with us and a friend of Hollywood Suite have written extensively on Jay Pays, uh, John Pays. Like I think Pavir said he's the one who coined prairie postmodernism when he wrote about John Pays. Um, but yeah, that festival screening is really, so it was when TIFF was the festival, a festival. So it's still TIFF, but just called something else, kind of a different iteration of the festival. Um, and if I had to guess, I bet it was at the Cumberland, knowing the projection. <laughs> I had to guess where that was happening um, based on how many screens I've heard have had their sound head like break in the middle of them. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's festival, sc- I mean, Jay would know this really well. Festival screenings and your premiere, like it, it's it's Nightmare. hard. It can really... <laughs> Do a it lot sucks. of damage. <laughs> it sucks. It 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 sucks. It, no, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> they're, they're, <laughs> we won't press like, you for on, on no. It just is like the only good thing, and this is part of what sucks about it, is how is how simplified the rules are. Kind of like short of a standing ovation, no reaction, no no flow of the evening, no vibe in the theater is going to be adequate. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, <clears throat> now if you get, if you get the standing, oh, then you're like, okay, that is commensurate with the li- literally years of my life that I have put into this fucking thing, you know, and that's not a like, feel sorry for yourself thing. Nobody asked you to, no one's holding your mother at gunpoint being like, go make your fucking movie asshole. Like you, you chose to be, you, you chose to be there, but like anything short of that feels like a slap in the face. Yeah. The shittiest thing about movies is how disposable they are. And this doesn't mean that, like, I have watched a movie that I wasn't paying close attention to sometimes. I've been on an airplane and watched a movie, (laughs) uh, you know, like, like, so so I've committed that fucking sin, right? Um, And I, and I try, I really try not to. I really, really try not to because I know that, like, the most, like, biggest piece of shit is still somebody's baby yeah it is so fucking long (laughs) it is so long like just getting the money is so Mm -hmm. long shooting it as long cutting it as long as shit post (laughs) posting it posting it as long (laughs) as fuck like you know like like oh my god so when it finally comes out and someone's like, watched it. Yeah, kind of boring. And then they move on to something else. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, I mean, fair enough. 
stuff, man. Like, there's no wrong reaction. If you thought it was boring, then, like, so be it. But, ah, it sucks. <laughs> so, it seems to me that a large part of making a movie is playing hot potato and just keeping the fucking energy going and sustaining yeah. people's interest and sustaining their um, suspension of disbelief and just keeping them. Hey, 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 over here, over here. Like a kid, like you're, you know, you got a kid, you just need your kid to fuck or a dog or whatever, <laughs> but you're, you're just trying to keep their focus and keep their interest, right? Right. And if somehow, in spite of every reason not to, and they're doing it and, and, and you have maintained it, and you're now within less than 10 minutes of the fucking thing being over. <laughs> and it shuts down. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. Oh, the agony. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. We got to move on to the next movie. But before we do, super quick, I just want to, I don't want us to go too deep on this tangent. But this film also didn't get seen because it ended up with the wrong distributor who had no idea how to market it, who needed to see it, etc. Now, that having been said, had this ended up with the right distributor who knew exactly where this needed to go, there is is kind of this theory floating that this could have been like a racer head level career starting. Do we think that's true? Potentially, yes. <laughs> yeah. Based on the quality of the film, yes. Based on what I know about John Pace and his ability to not want to play, like his, his uh, I would say his um, sincere like quality to not want to play the game of the film business, maybe no. But that's like at this point, what makes him so legendary is he didn't want to play the game and he didn't want to, you know, do what people told him to do. And he didn't want his films misrepresented. And I feel like with Eraserhead, you had the perfect David Lynch was that guy who was going to sit by the highway under a billboard to advertise his film. Whereas like John is, you know, he's a lot right now. He's an educator. He still works in television. I don't know. It just seems like he was like just he loves his film and he didn't need it to be bigger. Does that make sense? I think this stands exactly as it needs to stand. I think the people who needed to see it found it. I think obviously because we're yeah. talking about this on this podcast, more people need to see it. More people need to find yeah. it because it really is quite the gem. Yeah. We stand by the tenant on this show is uh, not for you is different than not good. So oh, yeah, just, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 We'll stand with that. All right. So when we come back, we are, of course, looking at another nightmarish dream, except for this one is meant for children. That's coming up after the break. So often, people refer to this movie as a fever dream, but I do not understand why, because from what it sounds like, this bizarre little movie seems to have played in almost constant rotation on TV, both in the US and in Canada. Now, perhaps it's because it seems like the movie shouldn't exist, with its child kidnapping slash forced labor plot, magical paintings, and homeless people dying in a fire and then visiting you as helpful ghosts. But it does exist, and although many people look at it as an oddity, its existence is actually essential to Canadian pop culture. We're going to find out about why. Jay, do you want to do the plot summary on this one? Good yeah. Luck. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I would love to. So basically it is your kind of uh, quintessential kid gets scared and, <laughs> and goes into a coma and then loses his hair. Uh, <laughs> comes out of coma, hates that he's lost his hair Ghosts tell him how to get his hair back, and it requires a peanut butter uh, plot. Uh, um, so, so yeah, it is just it's, it's what Joseph Campbell always kind of talks about. No, yeah, it, yeah, it's a chestnut. It's an it, old chestnut. Yeah, it's, you know, it's 
you know, it's like there's nothing new under the sun. It's just, you know, you want to build build a better mount, mousetrap. I don't know what that even means. That's stupid. That's just what Arlene Dickinson would say on Dragon's Den, I think. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's a kid gets scared and goes fucking bald and, and um, yeah, and then gets told uh, through bizarre means of a sort of way to get his hair back. And I, like, texted my mom about it this morning because I was like told her that I was watching it and she was like it was like one of those moments where she hadn't thought of that title that that title was yeah. somewhere way way the fucking Very, back of the, yeah and the Raiders of the Lost Ark where the Ark of the Covenant is you know and all the <laughs> layers of shit like and she was just like oh wow and I <laughs> I was like you remember renting that for me and she's like yes and but she was like she couldn't remember the plot and and then I and then I had to tell her and it was I think the same time it was like a week after she showed me we called it um the dog who stopped the war La Guerre de Tuc. Yeah. yeah now as an adult and I'll put it all together that it's also the same posse that like gives us the Tommy Tricker and the Stamp Traveler movies mm -hmm. which were like mm -hmm. absolutely fucking seminal hot shit when I like <laughs> I, I was like god damn that movie like the coolest fucking thing even as a like 12 13 year old just as a si sidebar about the Tommy Tricker shit as a 12 13 year old when I'm like when I'm at that point where I basically think almost everything that's like geared towards me is like lame and sucks mm -hmm. and I'm only interested in like Stallone killing people or whatever even that I was like, well, that's cool. That would, that would be a pretty cool power anyway. So, um, so yeah, it's, um, it's a very kind of, yeah, I don't, it's weird. Like the, you, you introed it perfectly. Cause it is like, it's, it feels to me when I think about it as like a cult film, even though my mother showed it to me as a kid and it was like, you know, Canada's answer to like, the Goonies. I don't know. Not even. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I think it is. They're on an adventure. They're fighting one weird looking bad guy. Like it's, the person it's a, has a dog. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's the oh, yeah. An Amblin film, which is even more disturbing. That, that's it. And that was um, that was his whole thing uh, that that producer rock. Oh, Demers. Yeah. Yeah. That was his whole uh, tales for all. I think they were all called. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. So he originally he decided to do them because he read an article in Montreal about the rising rate of suicides in young children and young adults. And uh, he wanted to do something about it. And he Jesus. thought the way. Yeah. yeah, totally. So, you know, starts in a dark place. But what he thought he could do was start introducing ideas to kids younger so they would learn how to sort of cope with them. Uh. So that's why the first one is Le Guerre des Tuc, because it's oh, learning about Jesus death and Christ. processing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, who didn't cry watching the Gal Day 2? Oh, like, this man. is not where I saw this going. But it's processing, right? And then this one is about being afraid of something it and being okay with staring at it. The fuck out of me as a yeah. five-year-old boy in montreal watching another boy in montreal lose his hair because <laughs> of how scared he got yeah. and I be teased like, mercilessly what that's but the <laughs> fucking like then he also that's not an option it's, is it? it's not just that he lost his hair it's that he finally gets it back and you think that that's like going to be a win for him but it ends up being the worst thing that could ever happen because then he's kidnapped by this crazed paintbrush manufacturer and like held hostage because that's the other part is he's had a fright but he gets over it but then getting over it means he's still in danger and that's where mm. my brain because i only saw this as an adult i saw it theatrically with um, a theater full of children and i just watched all the children look really scared <laughs> and i watched their parents realize their parents are probably my age like i'm 83 yeah. so I'm around your age jay and like i think their parents realized like oh i remember this film 
I did not remember how much this terrified me. And now I've brought my yeah. four-year-old who is crying <laughs> in a theater. Because <laughs> like, it, it's yeah. really deeply psychologically fraught. But yeah. that's what I love about uh, children's media in Canada is we are not afraid. We've never been afraid. We're still not afraid to uh, make deeply disturbing works for children. Yeah, that's a good fucking point. Yeah. This is also a start of what I actually think we should have more of, which is kids-centered horror movies. So I'm not yeah. necessarily taking, saying take your four-year-old, but like your 10, 11, 12, this is perfect. So like there's another okay. Canadian movie, The Gate, which is one of my oh, favorites. That amazing. is a children's movie. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah, yeah, and it's a children's horror movie. It's yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. And also you watch Care Bears, which is the same year as this. Terrifying. That thing's spooky as shit. Nelvana so, got really dark. I would say Jacob Tutu and the Hooded Fang mm, is a kid's fucking call. horror movie. Yeah. And on the on that Nelvana thing, because they did did Nelvana also do the raccoons? Uh the um I can't I don't remember know if, if they are raccoons or not. Becky, you would I know. I don't think that's Nelvana. I don't, I don't think it's Nelvana. I think everyone thinks it is, and I've thought it was for decades. And when I actually looked it's, at it, it actually wasn't. But, okay, so even Similar, if it though. isn't Nelvana, it's still, it's still a it kid's is thing from a... It oh, is, it's all right. All right. It is good, so, yeah. so it is such a bummer, that yeah. show. Like, I, I, yeah. I don't know if you've watched it recently. I loved it as a kid. Absolutely. And, and I, and I you know... And then as a grown-up, as a grown-up, as an adult, <laughs> uh, as, uh, as the first time I ever said that, okay, um, I watched it um, and I was like struck at how, for lack of a better term, like mature the, 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 the plots were. Mm -hmm. The conflict between him and her is she's got a, an offer to go work in a newspaper in the city, but he wants her to stay in the woods with the I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what? That's an issue, you know, and they kept losing. And and the factory, the serial sneer kept, you know, destroying everything. And it was yeah. just like it was and it and it wasn't like that stupid um smoggies, the smoggies and the sun. I remember talks. the smoggies, yeah, yeah. the song. <laughs> That's cool. We are the Sun Tots. <laughs> We're a neat and tidy crew. <laughs> we, we'll grow old together and we you... want the same for you. That right, is the um... song. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, man. I, I mean, uh, anyway. if, if, I, if I may, the other thing that Peanut Butter Solution reminds me of, and it's it would have been happening in 85, and if we're looking at Canadian media and the DNA, Fraggle Rock, which everyone forgets yeah. is a Canadian show yeah. filmed yeah. down the street in Yorkville. It was an HBO, yeah. CBC co-pro where you had national poet BP Nickel writing the songs with Dennis Lim. <laughs> you had this interesting point in 80s Canadian children's media where very exper experimental artists were being drawn into these companies to work on children's media. And I wonder... And a lot of David Cronenberg's collaborators started on Fraggle yeah. Rock. And it's just like, it's mind blowing that we had such an international stamp on what we produced for children that was seen overseas. And I feel like I want more as, as a dual citizen, I want more Americans to praise us for what we have done to children. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we still do. So Here, we still here's do. the thing that like we, yeah. we are still, um, I mean, this was a few years ago. Um, you know, whenever I was at the fucking, I say this like you would know. I didn't mean it like you know. When was I at Banff? But anyway, I was at Banff a few years ago. <laughs> I, I remember it well. Two thousand and twelve. I, I, I didn't mean it like that. Anyway, I, I heard a stat when I was there um, that we are still like the number one producer of uh, half-hour animated 
shows um, really? in the world. Yeah. And now that resonates like that, that, that has the ring of truth for, to, with me, for me, because there's never been a time when there wasn't a ton of voice work up here. And I started in voice shit as a yeah. kid. It's, it's something we definitely excel at for sure. And the peanut butter solution, like in addition to all the stuff we're talking about and, and it's like, yeah, it's, it's crazy how hard it goes. Um, but never like you, you can never take issue with it. There's never a moment where you're like, that's shouldn't be there. It's, it's really just like, damn, yeah, fuck. It's like, it, it's no, it's no harsher or scary than like a, a Grimm's fairy tale. When you think about it, right? True. Like, is it, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's got, you know, witches putting kids in fucking ovens and shit. Like that's not a light thing. Right. So, so it's, it's, it's an old kind of real thing, real fear, real harsh, you know, um, but the caliber of the fucking cinema in that movie is like spectacular. Like, yeah. like it was clearly built with an eye to being a hit in the States, I think, because mm -hmm. it is like slick as fuck. Um, and like, you know, we're, when we we're talking about John Pays, I was, you know, talking about how like it, brave to resist the, the, the urge to try to be current. Um, that doesn't mean trying to be current is always like a fucking sin. Sometimes it's a, it's a, sometimes it's a requisite, right. For the type of movie you're, you're, you're making, you know, you have to, and you can see, it's like, you know, you can see that they thought that this was good enough and it is, obviously it is, we're talking about it, but you can see it was built to be like a hit everywhere. Cause it's, it's a beautiful slick. It's well lit. Like um, it looks like a fucking American, like, studio film from that time like it, it, it looks like never ending story it looks like the goonies like it's it's like and and i can only assume made on you know a, a fraction of the budget of either of those like uh, never ending stories german but the big ass fucking german movies 50 <laughs> 50 yeah. million at the time i think you know um so anyway it's just like i um i can give props and 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 love to to anything that like finds a way to look as good as as everything else out there right now if you you know like that's a hard game to play it's yeah. a good judicious use of the budget too like those uh the paintings look amazing like the effect still looks really cool when he climbs Crazy. into the house through the painting and you're just like Crazy. that looks great yeah. yeah and even like the the way they do the hair growth i think they're i mean the wigs are obviously wigs but they're really smart with how they do the wigs so the progression it looks is like logical human hair to me that i mean as someone who watches yeah, drag race, i feel like i now know the distinctness <laughs> of human hair and i'm like that's probably human hair including the b story where the the friend applies it to his genital area so he can have pubes and it grows out through his pants. This is also the point in the screening where I saw parents realize they shouldn't be showing this to their kids. Like as soon as that was on screen, several parents were like, kids, we're going. <laughs> like I forgot about this. Part. <laughs> like, but that looks like human hair too, which is it's insane. But it's more insane. valuable life lessons we don't talk to kids often enough about. Like it's yeah. going to get out of control and it's going to freak you out. Like just go with it. And the kid actors are really good in this. So especially good. the sister. So, so good. Who's still oh, well. acting. She's so earnest and so she's kind of, you know, in this role of the mother has gone away to take care of her father's estate to Australia. And so, you know, this family of three is on their own and she's taking the role of the mother as like, I think like a 10 year old girl wearing yeah. her mother's like oversized bathrobe and trying to take care of her not that much younger yeah. brother and step into this like adult <laughs> female matriarch role, yeah. which 
even wrapping my head around that, like as a as a young, like I maybe I wasn't as scared as a young girl of losing my hair the way they are for like it was obviously catered towards male like little boy viewers. I was very terrified by the sister role of having to take on the mom stuff and make breakfasts and like be in charge of my younger brother. That was terrifying. Well, and the father who the parent, the adult roles here are also fascinating to see the lack of any of the actual authority. Like the principal's got a bit of the authority and like tries to do the right thing. But like either they're completely apathetic and useless like the dad or they're straight up evil like the senor. And uh, where are Connie's parents? She's just like, yeah, my sister disappeared. We all seem to be fine with this. (laughs) Did you recognize the dad, by the way? It's Michael yeah, Hogan he, uh, from uh, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I actually didn't recognize. I had to look it up. Yeah, noted Canadian character actor. Yes. Yeah, the kids are so amazing. You can. It's a specific thing um, to be able to uh, direct a kid, and that's not down to. Um, it's hard to get a kid to take your direction, mm-hmm. or it's hard to know what they want to hear. It. It's not anybody. It's not that. It's just like. Um, it's hard to find a way to kind of jam with somebody anyway, right? Like ha- half of that is tuning into the same frequency and eventually getting your own kind of thing going, right? And, but that's even with somebody who's like, you know, lived around the same amount of time as you, right? So with a kid to be able to find a way that makes sense to, to them and um, that they get something out of and that it's fun and blah, blah, blah. Like it just is like, is a blast. But it's not like um, it's not something I think that like uh, naturally occurs in every director. And Rock um, Demare specifically says he ca- he understands that. Like he's t- he talks about every point you're talking about how directing kids is a fucking nightmare. But he says he's very good at casting kids to be exactly who they are, and that's what he did. And and you know, but between him and and the, and the director, um, the, the the Australian fella, uh, um, uh, uh, Robo, uh, um, yeah. they really found the right kids and 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 got to jam with them in a really meaningful way because like from the first fucking moment when when she like comes to give him the like smoothie thing she makes in the morning <laughs> you know and the way she tells him to just like you know quit it just take it like it's like dialed down to fucking one man like mm-hmm. you know mo- most most adults don't find that kind of subtlety and it's just like such a nice real place to to start from and you know when i saw her surname in the movie podbury i like had to go google it because i thought it was who i thought it was i believe she's the daughter of morris podbury who was the mm-hmm. art director of the centaur theater when i was that's correct uh, yeah so um you know in in, Born in my it, world well, and in the world that I come from in Montreal, they're, they're, yeah, they, they, they loom fairly large. So, yeah. so like, um, and she's still at it, you know? Um, and so like, yeah, just a, just a lovely energy, uh, um, and, and super real and yeah. And, and the Connie guy, holy fuck, that kid makes me laugh. Like, um, yeah, just, just like, it's not, it's not just that they pop. It's not just that they are appealing. It's not just that they're real. It's this rare fucking combo of all of them um, where they check off every box. Like, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the same kid can be a Disney channel kid can, you know, be in like the Florida project. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, But to find kids who can kind of 
rock and roll in both is a pretty special thing. The the child who played Connie was Degrassi, right? That's Yick from Degrassi and is yeah, now like sure. an incredibly prominent assistant assistant director working with like Guillermo del Toro and right, like his, I was looking at his filmography and it was like okay some really cool acting gigs and then like oh you are a major player in the Canadian film industry which is really Shit. nice to see. Just before we uh, end up on this episode uh, what do we feel about the soundtrack because without it we may or may not have Anglo Please. Celine Dion. I have so many thoughts mostly because I am currently obsessed with the um, unauthorized biopic on Celine Dion called Ellen. Oh. It's going to be my favorite yeah. film of the year. I watched it on an airplane by myself and was looking around at other passengers like, are you seeing this? Is anyone else seeing this on this <laughs> I And so I wish that that unauthorized biopic had tapped into the peanut butter solution, you know, trivia where wow. this is these are our first two english recorded tracks or english singles and they're good and they had music videos they're on youtube where she is superimposed in the house with the burned up bodies just like singing a pop song <laughs> my mind is blown i love this i love it so much thoughts jay <laughs> yeah um there's always there there's there's fucking jams and all these and all of the the rock demers movies like like uh Tommy Trigger's got Rufus Wainwright's first song, you know, like really, yeah, and he's in it. He, he's Great in here it, for talent, <laughs> playing it on camera. And I had no idea. I, like I, I remember when that that movie was on TV one night. My mother was like, "That kid is terrific," and then, and she and she kept <laughs> he's got a real career ahead of <laughs> talking about. It. And then years later, I was like, "Hey, it's that. Do you know who that is? That's the, the remember that." Oh my God! And then his father played my father on TV. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and undeclared. Loud and Weird. Wainwright was uh, yeah, right, right. All, all for it, man. I love it. Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us once again. This was super Thanks, fun. Becky. Thank you, Jay. It was really nice to chat about all kinds of weird tangents. Yes. And uh, yeah, it was lovely. Thank thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet Likewise, you. Likewise, lovely to meet you. Was, uh, thank you for having me. It was, this was wonderful. Yes, Jay, thank you for joining us. Now, uh, is there anything you want people to check out? We always let give people just a little oh. moment for platforming. So oh, you only get one, um, one thing. He has so many. <laughs> you, oh, boy. Uh, no, um, yeah. Your your families. Make sure everyone's doing good. Aww. <laughs> good. Just check out your families. Make sure they're good. Thank you, Jay Baruchel. All right. And you can join us in two weeks where we're headed to 1999, a decade that is just full of black comedy gold. And we're going to kick it off with two of them. They both star Kirsten Dunst, and they're both absolutely vicious. It's Dick and Drop Dead Gorgeous. And we're going to be joined by Emily Gagne. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. On four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. Today's episode featured Alicia Fletcher and Jay Baruchel as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Hey. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.